Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Friday, March 11th, 2022, and I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at TPI. And I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow, and TPI's Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Lamb. Today, we're delighted to have as our guests Stan Besson and Phil Verveer. Stan is a senior consultant with Charles River Associates. He's a nationally recognized expert in the economics of intellectual property rights, telecommunications policy, and telecommunications and computer standards. Stan has taught at Rice, Columbia, Georgetown University Law Center, and in government. He was a Brookings Economic Policy Fellow for the Office of Telecommunications Policy and the Executive Office of the President and Co-Director of the Network Inquiry Special Staff at the Federal Communications Commission. Prior to joining CRA, he was a senior economist at the RAND Corporation. Phil is a senior research fellow at the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he also holds a joint appointment at the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. Phil has practiced communications and antitrust law in the government and private law firms for nearly five decades. In the Obama administration, he served as senior counselor to the FCC chairman, and before that, as Ambassador and U.S. Coordinator for International Communications and Information Policy. Earlier in his career, he was an antitrust prosecutor at the DOJ, where he was lead counsel for the U.S. VAT&T case and also at the FTC, and he has been chief of three FCC bureaus. Welcome, Stan and Phil. It's a pleasure to have you here. You have now waded into the content moderation debate, one of the more intractable problems of the digital revolution, with a new paper titled Section 230 and the Problem of Social Cost. As most of our listeners probably know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act exempts internet platforms from liability for harms that may result from materials posted on their platforms. This exemption has become very controversial due to well-known concerns about harmful content on the internet. However, there's no agreement on whether and if so how Section 230 should be modified. Your paper applies what economists would call a Cosian analysis to the problem of harmful content on internet platforms. So why is the Coase theorem framework a useful way to think about this issue? And maybe you can start by briefly explaining what the Coase theorem says. Okay. I think one of the most fun parts about this is taking a 60-year-old paper and using it to apply it to a contemporary policy issue. But I think it turns out that Coase has a lot to say about Section 230, a lot of useful things to say. We modify his analysis somewhat, take into account some specific features of the Section 230 debate, but we find Coase's way of thinking about this to be very useful. For those who don't know the Coase theorem story, Coase starts off with a very simple analysis, a simple example. There's a single farmer and a single rancher on adjacent properties. The rancher has cattle that, if unfenced, may wander into the farmer's field and destroy some crops. And the question is, what sort of legal liability regime should be put in place to deal with the potential for harm caused by straying cattle? What Coase shows, the Coase theorem, if you like, says, if there are no transactions costs, it makes no difference whether or not the farmer, it could be the rancher is liable for crops that are damaged. If he's liable, let's assume that it's efficient to build a fence. That is, the harm that would be caused in the farmer's crop is greater than the cost of building a fence. The Coase theorem says, irrespective of the legal liability, the fence will be built if it's efficient to do so. The rancher will build a fence to avoid the liability to the farmer. If the rancher is not liable, the farmer will pay the rancher to build a fence. And that's the simplest 
sort of Coase theorem. Most people think of that as the Coase theorem, but the Coase paper is actually far more nuanced than that. It actually starts there, but in fact considers a range of other considerations. So let me just talk about just briefly two things that Coase how Coase modifies the simple analysis and two of the things that Phil and I have added to it for the Section 230 thing. First of all, Coase says that when there are transactions costs, which are almost certainly are in the real world, the initial assignment of property rights makes a difference. In the no transactions cost world, it doesn't make a difference. So let me just read just a short quotation from Coase to make the point. He says, one arrangement of rights may bring about a greater value of production than any other, but unless this is the arrangement of rights established by the legal system, the costs of reaching the same result by altering and combining results through the market may be so great that the optimal arrangement of rights and the greater value of production that it would bring about may never be achieved. So first, it introduces transactions costs and says, you have to take that into account. The second thing that Coase talks about that's a variation from the initial story is that when there were a large number of potential victims, instead of having a single farmer, lots of farmers out there and the harm, it could be each of the farmers could experience a small amount of harm, but collectively a large amount. Coase says direct regulation may be appropriate. And let me again read a short quote. There is no reason why on occasion government administrative regulation should not lead to an improvement in economic efficiencies. This would seem to be particularly likely when a large number of people are involved and in which therefore the cost of handling the problem through the market or the firm might be high. So those are the two modifications of the, if you like, the Coase theorem. What Phil and I have talked about are two additional features that have to be taken into account if you apply this to Section 230. One of them, of course, is there are two potential sources of liability. There's both the internet platform and the source of the information. Under Section 230, the source is potentially liable, but the platform is not. So there's the question of whether or not that is an efficient initial assignment of rights. And by the way, the other issue concerns something that some people have referred to as content immoderation. The economic equivalent of the fence in the Coase theorem story is content moderation. It's the activities undertaken by an internet platform or information source to limit the amount of harmful content that is disseminated. At least one person has used the colorful terminology, content immoderation, arguing that in fact, the incentives of some participants in the internet, either platforms or information sources or both, may be such that they have an incentive to put on, to disseminate harmful information, because that in fact attracts people to their site, that in fact they take that into account. So they're balancing not only the potential liability and the cost of moderation, but also the potential benefits from moderation. Phil and I take those other factors into account to further modify the cost analysis. So... What does the Coase theorem imply about whether platforms should have liability? Well, I don't think the Coase theorem by itself is an empirical question. But Phil and I conclude, for a variety of reasons, that it would be better in many cases, if you want to limit the amount of harmful information, to make the platform liable, perhaps in addition to or instead of the information source. Is that because platforms can mitigate the harms at lower cost? Or? Well, there are a variety of reasons. I have a short list here. It's often hard to identify the source and bring action against them. It's a high transactions cost issue. Information sources may be judgment-proof, unlike many of the platforms. And so it wouldn't be much good to sue them. And finally, there may be economies of scale in content moderation. 
which makes them they make them a more suitable source, you know, a suitable party to be liable for the dissemination of harmful information. And in fact, despite the fact that they have apparent immunity from liability, there in fact have been a couple of cases, we cite them, in which actions were brought against internet platforms, some successful, some mostly less so. But on balance, we think that's probably likely to be the case, that making platforms liable would be an improvement a better initial assignment of property rights, although we're very careful to point out that we don't think that's a panacea. Of course, there's, you know, there's such a great variety of harmful stuff that could be posted on the internet. There's everything from, you know, some of them might be easier to sue for than others, like, let's say, copyright infringement, piracy, that's affected by Section 230, all the way to hate speech and fake news, which obviously different people have different views as to what fake news is. I mean, does the same analysis apply to all potential harms? I think I should let Phil take that one. Well, Tom, I think that the short answer is that, as you suggest, there's a very large variety of potential harms. And the question of how best to deal with the particular negative externalities is a fair one. A lot of the proposals that have emanated from our Congress have tried to identify specific kinds of things that they would like to expand the liability exposure of the platforms for. And so my guess is we're not likely to have a one-size-fits-all kind of arrangement. There are plainly, if you will, gradations of harm. There are plainly situations where the present arrangement, which relies upon individual initiative to try to curb the harm, that is, uh, individuals suing in tort, are not very plausible. There are some other situations where perhaps it could be plausible. We have at least one Notorious example of that, perhaps. But it is very, very likely, as Stan said, that this is not a one-size-fits-all set of arrangements. And it's also very, very likely that trying to find remedies, if we feel that remedies are necessary, is going to be a continuing activity. It's not something that's uh, going to be resolved in any steady or stable state. And we, and we would expect, and as the case, as Phil mentioned, the various proposals for legislation do contemplate various kinds of what we call carve-outs, things that, in fact, a platform, would, if it were liable, would be liable if it disseminated that information, but what might not be liable if it disseminated other information that had not already been designated as harmful. So I have a couple of questions. I mean, one is, is it possible, I can't believe I'm going to ask this, but is it possible for our transactions costs to be too low? I mean, is it, would you make it easy for anybody to sue a platform for anything that they thought harmed them? I mean, you're talking about sort of carve-outs and you have to decide what harm is, but it seems like everybody's going to have something that they consider to be a harm and they have one easy target. And the second is, you know, how do you relate this to First Amendment issues? I mean, the First Amendment basically says, uh, you know, if you think about it as a platform, if you're going to err on the side of taking too much down or leaving too much up, we leave too much up. And you seem to be saying, are you saying the opposite? I'll actually let Phil talk about the First Amendment in a moment. I'll say one thing, and Coase makes this point. Many of the kinds of harm that we're interested in, the ones that are really harmful, involve a large number of people, each affected to a small degree, but collectively the harm is very large. In those cases, we usually worry about the opposite of the problem you described. We worry that no one will, in fact, have an incentive to bring legal action. 
And in fact, that's why people have, particularly the Europeans, have thought about alternatives that would not require direct legal action by somebody who thought they were harmed. There are certainly cases in which somebody is harmed. There are, in fact, a couple of the cases that we mentioned are ones in which an individual or group of individuals are identifiable victims or claim victims, victimhood from harm, and they have, in fact, brought suit. I think we think the bigger problem in many cases is going to be that, in fact, there's the free rider problem. No one has an incentive, even though the harm, collective harm is very large, no individuals is willing to incur the cost to bring legal action against the source. Now, Phil's going to tell you about the First Amendment. Well, I'd also maybe, Phil, if you could tie into what uh, Stan was saying, if you could give an example of a type of harm that where the collective harm is large and the individual harm is not worth anybody suing, that does not run afoul of the First Amendment. Well, let me, uh, Yes, we've got a lot of, now at this point, we've got a lot of questions floating through the air. So let me see if I can answer one or two of them. First of all, Scott's concerned that uh, you might have over-enforcement if you let anybody sue for anything is, of course, a um, something that we see in the policy realm a fair amount. You see it in the antitrust world where concerns about treble damage actions can, in at least some circumstances, perhaps lead to over-enforcement to sort of vexatious litigation. One of the proposals, a type of proposal that's floated around in Congress has been to expand the ability of the government to sue, but not private individuals to sue on certain kinds of harms. And that presumably would be a way that would mitigate somewhat the anxiety about excessive enforcement, but to permit the Justice Department, the Federal Trade Commission, and state attorneys general uh, to sue in the event that something rose to some appropriate threshold, perhaps on a parents patriae kind of arrangement. Questions, what kinds of things might be a situation where an individual wouldn't find it useful to sue, but where collectively you might get overall set of harms. One might be misinformation about the efficacy of vaccines, for example, or the efficacy of wearing masks in the context of a pandemic. There could be things that run very counter to standard scientific understandings that disseminate, but that in any individual case, uh, causing causality in terms of damage or whatever, would be so daunting that nobody, unless they have an ideological reason for suing, would sue. But a normal economic expectation would be that you wouldn't find suing. Yet, it could be something that harms a great many people. And in fact, you know, when the historians get done with our uh, dealing with our pandemic, presumably decades or centuries from now, my guess is that part of the story will be that there was misinformation about certain of the uh, things that we should do to protect ourselves. It probably made it worse for a significant number of individuals. That'd be kind of an easy example. But would that, I mean, obviously I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but if you had something which basically said you can't debate the efficacy of a particular drug, because that's misinformation. Doesn't that run afoul of the First Amendment? Even if we all agree right now that vaccines, or most of us agree that vaccines are effective, well, there may be some new scientific development someplace that raises questions. I mean, you know, some of us are old enough to remember thalidomide and a drug that was approved by the FDA and then later on was found to cause a lot of harm. If you had something like a prohibition on debating that. I agree with that. That's You're right. And this is a First Amendment, the very broad sweep of the First Amendment in terms of our society, one incidentally not shared by presumably any other country on the face of the earth, including a lot of them that have uh, similarly strong attachments to freedom of expression. But our particular approach to this 
is one that is either literally unique or close to it. And you get an argument, a debate that goes on and on and on in the world of constitutional law about whether or not we should deal with these things, as we more or less do these days, saying, that, well, the right remedy for full speech, bad speech, harmful speech is more speech. Uh, but you also get something of a tradition that comes from other Supreme Courts that to the effect that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. So you get this kind of tension that will always be there when it comes to the issues of freedom of expression. And indeed, the question of freedom of expression, broadly stated, is one of the things that at this point, I think, politically prevents much in the way of amendments of Section 230, because there are anxieties that arise with respect to any proposed remediation or amendment, that it will somehow or other be harmful to the ability of people to freely express themselves. So the answer with respect to the First Amendment, of course, is there isn't any very convenient answer in terms of government compulsion. Now, there's some other things that one ought to think about in connection with this, which is, as noted, others who have very strong attachments to freedom of expression are not limited that way. And you can see developments now in the European Union and in the United Kingdom that will, in fact, end up having a practical effect on the kinds of issues we're talking about now that will proceed without that particular inhibition. And that will have some ripple effect here. It's going to, without doubt, have some effect on the complete free flow of information. Whether or not our society is better off for that or not is one that, again, people will be able to debate for a very, very long time. Oh, and how about? Uh, let me say, can I, can I say a word here? Just as a, as a non-lawyer here, we all know the old example: the First Amendment doesn't protect your right to shout fire in a crowded theater. Okay, and I suppose the closest thing to that on the internet would be somebody using the internet to say foment a riot or riotous behavior or that sort of thing. That would be a, would raise an issue. You probably won't be able to deal with that, and we don't we don't expect to be able to deal with that by private voluntary action. I'm not worried of that case about oversuing the source. What I'm worried about is somehow how the source of harmful information will be closed down. And that's why we say that regardless of what you, any modification of the liability under Section 30, anything that shifts some liability to platforms would probably be, have to be accompanied by carve-outs and greater specificity about the obligations that platforms have. So still, I worry about how one comes up with, decides what is harmful and what isn't. So for example, Florida now, well, Florida has this don't say gay law, right? So the Neanderthals in their legislature think that people are harmed by that kind of conversation, right? So in their minds, that kind of discussion is also harmful. Can they then sue Facebook and, and so on for having discussions about LGBTQ issues? I think you're right to be worried. I remember actually I appeared at one of you, I was an audience of one of your conferences where I said I was worried about something and you said I had the right to be worried. <laughs> and we have the right to be worried here. We don't want to claim that we have the answer to all these, to this question in our paper. Mm-hmm. Our paper, I think, its contribution is a way to think about, to parse the issues, to get the help in drawing the lines. But we are convinced that drawing the lines will not be easy, will take a long time, and will undoubtedly be very controversial. So you're right to worry. I do a lot of that. (laughs) You know, even before one gets into issues of how hard it is to make the carve-outs that you're talking about and draw the lines. I mean, there are a lot of people who are not certainly a significant number of people who think that Section 230 and the liability protections was necessary 
for the development of the internet, basically. What are your views on that? I don't know. The internet seems to have done pretty well. I don't know whether it is a necessary condition. Certainly, the internet is very different now from what it was when it first started. And so maybe we've learned some stuff and maybe that could change our view about whether or not it certainly was the case when the Section 230 was adopted. And we say this, that it was designed primarily as a device for encouraging the development of the Internet. But these other issues have now arisen. They clearly are. They're in the paper almost every day, not just in journals, but the papers. And undoubtedly, something is likely to be done. I think one of the things that I think is important is to think about the legal liability together with a number of regulatory interventions. I think if you were a platform and you were subject to liability, potential liability, you would be much happier if your obligations were specified more clearly in the law. And that's why I think things like clear carve-outs, not that it's going to be easy to do, clear statements of the content control issues is clearer. That would be something that if I were a platform, if I were Facebook, I would want to know clearly what my obligations were if I were, in fact, subject to liability. And they might actually be happy with that. No, I think they might be happy with that. But it doesn't really get around the problem that it's pretty difficult to figure out what those should be. Oh, we completely agree with that. Right, right. Who would you envision? Which would you envision, you know, rulemakings at the some agency about this or uh, the FTC or some new agency, some new internet agency? Phil has been, I think, among a group of people proposing such an agency, so let him talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we've been, as you mentioned, Tom, I've been uh, active at the Kennedy School at Harvard with uh, some others because we've tried to see if we could figure out whether or not there are social controls that might be appropriate to the big platforms. And what we've come away with, beginning on the, with the competition issues, not these content moderation negative externality issues. At the beginning of the competition issues, we came down the same place as many, many others who've looked at this uh, in Brussels and London, University of Chicago, and, uh, and with our project at Harvard in the same place, which is you probably can't do this successfully without a regulatory agency. There are a lot of reasons behind that. One can get into the minutiae uh, uh, with uh, large amounts of time to talk about that. But when you then begin to look at this part of it, the part we're talking about, which is the negative externalities that flow out of the particular business models, uh, the open mic business models that we're talking about, the question become, as you've indicated, as we've, we've discussed, they become extraordinarily difficult. They become extraordinarily difficult for reasons of trying to define adequately what it is that you're concerned about they're very difficult because of First Amendment limitations here in the United States. And also because the nature of the harms almost certainly evolved. When Section 230 was adopted by our Congress, the notion that foreign interference with our elections or with our political process could be one consequence of that was something that my guess is no one imagined. Probably no one imagined, to take a more homely example, what cyberbullying would be like. You know, how appalling is it that children, uh, teenagers probably especially, are the object of kind of brutal bullying where it turns out that at least a tort action against a platform is going to be unavailing, right? And indeed, because of the odd scope of Section 230, if somebody has repeated a, let's say, defamatory or harmful posting about an individual, about a teenager, for instance, the person who has done that is a so-called user. and that user is immune. 
so that if a maladjusted kid writes something awful about a classmate on a social media platform, and then three or four other classmates decide that it'd be fun to just repeat it verbatim, there's nothing to be done about those three or four other classmates. Now, these are the kinds of issues. I mean, if you think about this, on the one hand, you know, enormously significant geopolitical issues. And on the other hand, really unfortunate things that happen right in the neighborhood to innocent individuals, where because of the apparent, frankly, inability to deter this, this kind of activity through the normal judicial process, through normal individual actions, in other words, the pure Kosian approach, you've got something that is ongoing that we haven't been able really to control in any meaningful way, haven't been able to deter or discourage in any very meaningful way. Now, some uh, smart people addressing some of these things say, well, we should actually, one way to deal with this would be for Congress to make more things criminal, for Congress to make more kinds of activities illegal, at which point there might still be First Amendment debates, but those First Amendment debates be dampened down a fair amount. And it may be we want to do something like that. But there's this whole range of problems that when you try to look at this through a Kosian lens, you come away thinking it does turn out that notwithstanding the fact that Section 230 is a, in many ways a wonderful example of Kosa's influence, his enormous influence over law and policy over the last 40 or 50 years, where it turns out it doesn't, at least in the pure case, it doesn't work very well. And so as we've been discussing, remedies are very difficult to articulate in any completely adequate way. But it seems clear we're going to need to do something that looks a lot like some kind of regulation, some kind of ongoing activity. You cannot conceivably believe that expecting congressional enactments as new issues come along would be a, an effective, pragmatic, practical way of contending with these things. We're going to have to empower somebody who can act more quickly than our Congress can to try to deter these things if, in fact, that's what we want to see happen. Are there analogs in other areas of regulation to this COSIAN analysis like pollution, EPA, or have you thought about other areas of regulation that have the similar dynamic? I would say that. I would say this isn't the first time I've used the Coase theorem. I was on the other side the last time of the argument. This had to do with the copyrightability for cable television, where they had a compulsory license. And I argue in a paper that Ronald Coase actually published that, in fact, that could have been handled through the market. But as a general matter, as Phil and I have both said here, it's hard in, in any of these cases, and I get the language I read from Coase makes this clear, if you have a situation, any situation in which harm is widespread, but no individual party that is harmed has an incentive to bring suit, you have to have regulation. So you might think of air pollution. We're not going to allow the victims, it, we're not going to think we resolve the problem of air pollution by having individuals sue the factory for the harm they individually experience. No one thinks that's a good idea. And so there are lots of them involving negative externalities. This is a particularly, it's a more difficult one. By the way, we share the skepticism that you guys have said. We do not think it's easy. We, what we do think this is a useful way to frame the question and to raise the right issues. Well, one other thing is you don't really, really address this directly, but you kind of uh, hint at it in the paper, is when you talk about the incentives of the platforms, in some cases, to disseminate or magnify the dissemination of harmful 
information. Now, there is a, a school these days, and maybe it's a, a, maybe it's a growing school that thinks that you know that the root of a lot of the evils, and this being one of them, is the advertising-supported internet. You know that the major platforms are some of the major platforms are you know are supported by ads, and so they have the incentive to look for more eyeballs to see the ads, and so they're solution perhaps to problems like this as well as other as privacy related problems is to somehow i don't know how you exactly do this but somehow uh, prohibit the advertising supported that business model basically yeah. i think actually that hasn't been, that's been a proposal i forget now who the proposer was is i think a nobel prize winner some sort of tax on advertising in order to discourage this yeah i think one of the but, certainly, but yeah. certainly it is the case that having an incentive to attract more viewers more users, it does create economic incentives, and in some cases, to put on harmful materials. By the way, those aren't the only ones. We give some much more prosaic examples of journals that are prepared to publish anything for a price, even if the stuff is wrong, because the, the author of the journal pays them to do so. There's apparently some internet sites that libel people in the hopes of that the person who's liable will sue them to take the libelous material down. So it's not only advertising, but that's certainly part of it. Yeah, as long as there, let me say one more thing. There are different schools about how serious the content in moderation is. Some people think it's incredibly serious. We quote somebody in the paper who thinks it's not a big problem, but even they think that there are instances in which harmful information is disseminated. And you're right, it is because attracting more people to the site raises the profits of the site. That's, as we said, that's not something, that kind of consideration is not present in the Coast Theorem story. The analogy would be if the rancher benefits when his cattle strays and they eat some of the farmer's crops and get fatter as a result. So he considers not only the cost of building the fence, but also the foregone benefits of his cattle grazing. So, but this is, you know, again, this is not easy. Neither Phil nor I would say this is an easy problem to solve. Right. I think we have a good framework. Some of the um, proposals to deal with the advertising and therefore the effort at keeping people engaged, try to approach this by, in certain ways, limiting or affecting the algorithms that tend to basically present to people things that will keep them engaged. And so if you could demonstrate that the harm was, in, in fact, in some ways, a function of the amplification that the algorithms produce, that that would be a reason to exclude the limitation of liability or say a little more simply to hold liable a platform. So that's one of, and there are various flavors of that particular approach, but that's one of the approaches that we've seen surface in Congress as well. Phil reminds me of the fact that we say there are at least two kinds of fixes being considered in the legislation in the, before the Congress. One is carve-outs, and the other is a greater specificity of the content moderation obligations of a site. The Europeans, in fact, have some of this as well, where they, in fact, look closely at what sites are trying to look closely at what sites are doing and to try to specify you know, what good practices are. And that's, again, a, another potential tool that might be considered here. You know, there's one other thing that probably warrants a, a brief mention, and that is the original judicial decision with respect to Section 230 arose about a year after it was adopted by the Fourth Circuit, a case called Zarin against AOL. And that decision gave an extremely broad reading of the Section 230 requirements. And it has been followed just about uniformly ever since, including in cases that in many respects have facts that are so appalling, it's hard to believe that the courts involved didn't try to find 
some way to escape the precedent. A couple of cases they did, but by and large they haven't. And again, with with facts that are so, as I say, so appalling that it's just hard to believe that human beings do these things to one another. In recent times, Justice Thomas has now on three occasions indicated that he believes the Supreme Court should take a look at Section 230 because of a view that it has been interpreted unnecessarily broadly or misinterpreted in some way. Now, the court obviously hasn't done that. It hasn't touched this in notwithstanding certain opportunities to do it in the 25 years that the provision has been around. But in addition to the, all the congressional proposals, there is, of course, some possibility that one day the Supreme Court will take a look at it and perhaps somewhat modify the reading of the statute that we've had now since that original Fourth Circuit decision. Actually, uh, Phil reminds me of something that uh, we, we do talk about. There were a couple of cases successfully brought against platforms. And the question is, why did that happen? And in those cases, our language is we say the platforms were insufficiently passive in retransmitting information provided by others. So they, in fact, incurred liability by interacting with the information provided by the sources. I suppose they have learned their lesson by now. But again, if you play a a more aggressive role, you may in fact find yourself liable where you otherwise might not have been. And that's why it's really important, I think, for platforms and everyone else to clarify what in fact their liabilities and opportunities are. Well, I thought that Section 230 allows platforms to moderate and take down content. They can take it down. In these particular cases, they interacted more than that. They passed through the content with something extra, which they added. And that was considered, and this is not a legal term, insufficiently passive. And those, in fact, are the small number of cases in which they, in fact, were found liable. Right. Yes, pure takedown, not a problem, as I understand. Yeah. You know, the particular cases, the interactions, probably to most of us, would seem to have been so trivial that if you were a legal realist, you'd say the courts involved were trying to escape the possibility of holding the defendants harmless. But there have only been a couple of cases like that. And to say the great percentage of the decisions are very much to the contrary in the face of, as I say, just absolutely remarkable factual situations. Well, this has been really a very interesting discussion. Sarah and Scott, do you have any additional questions you'd like to bring up? No, this is really interesting. I think this we can be confident this will be around for a long time. Yes. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you again. This was really a great discussion, and we appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks for being here.